Well, good morning. We'll go ahead and start class. Um, I'll just start by saying thank you for the prayers and thoughts for Stacy's brother Bruce. Uh, he's home now, recovering from his heart procedure and doing as well as expected. So he could probably still use prayers, but uh, things went the way they should. And so we want to thank y'all for that and let you know he is at home recovering now. So. I am not at my very best this morning, but I am going to soldier through and we're going to have a good discussion about a story we all probably have known since we were like this. David and Goliath, chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. And, and it'll be a little different, I guess, than what I usually do. Um, I'm, I'm going to, it's a long chapter, but I think it's worth reading. I'll stop occasionally, but not as much as I usually do. Because I have um, four statements regarding things you can get out of this. And I'd like for you to maybe think about while we're reading this, maybe your own self and what you can get from this that might apply to these things I'm going to ask. And hopefully we'll have a little bit of discussion before we move on to chapter 18, which I am prepared to do 18 if we can get there. So, all right. And like I said, everybody knows this story since, you know, only a little boy David, you know, all that. Uh, um, <laughs> it's kind of funny when I read about Goliath. I don't know how many of y'all saw the TV movie way back when. It may have even been in the 70s. I don't know. And the guy who played Goliath was the one who played Lurch from the Adams Family TV show, the black and white one. Um, I always thought that was so funny. Lurch was coming at David. But uh, I think of that when I read it, so... That's the way my mind works, I'm afraid. But All right, we will start in verse 1 of chapter 17, and just bear with me. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in, ooh, this is a good one, Ephes Demim, I'm going to go with that. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So this word champion here, if you literally translate it, means the man between two. Um, There was a Hebrew expression called a man who was a go-between. That's what this is here. Sometimes a warrior would fight in a single combat in place of an entire army on each side. Um, that way there wasn't as many casualties, I guess. Uh, Goliath's height. That roughly translates out to, y'all probably already know, nine foot nine inches, somewhere thereabouts. So he's at least a good two feet taller than Shaquille O'Neal. So that's pretty big and intimidating, I would say. All right, verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. So that 5,000 shekels up there that uh, his coat of mail, that's about 125 pounds, roughly. That's pretty heavy, big, big fella. 
Uh, and even that head of his spear, the 600 shekels, that comes out to about 15 to 17 pounds. You know, that's just the head of the spear. So he, he's got some pretty heavy-duty equipment here for a very large man. Okay. Uh, and his shield-bearer went before him. So he's also got somebody who goes out in front of him and kind of takes some of the heat for him. So uh, he's prepared. He's ready to go. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then he will, we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So that's what he's trying to do here is get a man from each side to fight. And, you know, why are we drawn up for this battle? You know, I'll take on one of your, your best and we'll call that whoever wins. Of course, we know they're not going to honor their side of that. But uh, he didn't really think he'd lose, did he? Excuse me, I'm sorry. But they're greatly afraid. So Saul, their big above shoulders of everyone else is afraid. Um, They're all afraid. Verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. I read that thinking that was Saul, but I think I was talking about Jesse is old and advanced in years. That's what I think. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third uh, Shema. That sounds good. David was the youngest. The three, well, we didn't even hear about four through seven, did we? Uh, David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So for forty days this giant of a man comes out and taunts and degrades Israel. And and probably enjoying watching them cower and be afraid every day. Kind of interesting that. The battle didn't ever actually happen in that 40 days. They just continued to let him come out and do that. But that's what happened every morning and every evening. Verse 17, And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So the dads want to know how they're doing. He wants a report back. And he's sending, sending his youngest son to go do that. 19. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So it sounds like there's, I don't know if that's just referring to them preparing to fight or if they're actually engaging in some battle. Um, 20. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper And took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. 
And Israel in the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. So they're drawing up. I don't know if anything's happened yet. It doesn't look like it. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. So he left what he had brought, and he wanted to know what was going on. 23, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. So I assume this is the first time David has heard this. Um, everybody else's reaction has been to be afraid. Um, verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. I believe that has to do with taxes, where the the household would no longer have to pay taxes. I believe that's what that's referring to. Um, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That uncircumcised, it's, that, it's kind of a dig and a slam. They refer, you know, it's like a pagan is pretty much what he's saying. 27, and the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So they repeat what, what would be done for the person who actually killed him. Um, now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, talking about David, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Who's this reminds you of this? He's probably jealous of all this anyway. This makes me just go straight to Joseph and his brothers. It seems so much like that, where the youngest one at that time is, um, you know, kind of getting on the nerves of all the other ones. They, they kind of look at him like he thinks he's better than them or something. But that tone is coming out here. It just reminds me of it. Okay, verse 29. And David said, what have I done now? <laughs> Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. So he keeps asking this. You know, I, I don't know if he's incredulous like Look at all that could be happening, and y'all are just sitting here. I, I, I don't know if that's why he keeps asking it, but he does. He keeps doing it. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. So he's like, Don't be afraid of this big guy. He said, I'll take care of it. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them." For he has defied the armies of the living God. So David's recounting what he's done before and shows he's he's brave and that he has control over his fear when he needs to, and uh, basically giving an account for why he thinks he can he can do this. But the real reasons to come. 
And David said, the, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. So David was pretty convincing, I would say, in this. Uh, I'm sure Saul still looked at him as this kid, and it's like, <laughs> I don't even want to go out there, and none of my best soldiers want to go out there, but sure, you go ahead. But maybe there was something in him that he believed. He believed that this could happen. Nobody else was trying. Uh, verse 30, let's see. Oh, I was just going to point this out to you before we move on. In verse 37, his response is basically his faith in God. And, and if you'll go back to verse 14 of, of 1 Samuel, Jonathan's the exact same way. It, it's, uh, he believed God could provide the victory no matter what. He, he threw it on, on God. He didn't believe that he could do it himself. Uh, David is showing his complete faith in God here, and Jonathan did the exact same thing. If you remember when him and his armor bearer took out like 20 men by themselves before the rest engaged in the fight. So they're, they're very like-minded, which we'll see later that they become fast friends. But uh, All right, uh, verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. I also imagine they're big. Because <laughs> remember how big Saul is, and David's not that big. But anyway, he's not comfortable in them. He can't go out and fight in this. It's going to be a hindrance to him. Um, so David put them off. Verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. That's got to be a sight. <laughs> Verse 41, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ready and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, by the Philistine's gods, little g here. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle of the Lord, the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. This whole giving your body, your flesh to the animals and the birds, that was considered almost worse than death <laughs> to them. So these these are kind of curses they're throwing at each other a little bit. Just uh, sounds worse in their time than maybe we're thinking. But uh, verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. 
the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now, this has always been a little controversial here, I guess for some, because it sounds like the stone kills him, but then it says he cuts off his head and kills him. I, I believe he did prevail with the stone. That's what knocked him down. That's what... Maybe he'd have gotten back up eventually. Maybe he wouldn't have, but definitely dead when he cut his head off. So <laughs> I don't really see that that's much of a controversy, honestly. Uh, there was one commentary I read, and it's kind of a gruesome example, but how many times have you ever said someone died in a car wreck, but they didn't actually die right then in the car. They died at the hospital, but they died because they were in a car wreck. I know that's a terrible example, but it, it, it could be similar here. He died because he got hit in the forehead with the stone and he was knocked out, but he may not have quit breathing until his head got cut off. So, you know, I, I don't see a controversy here, but apparently some people like to point this one out as one. But All right, verse 52. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. So he kept his armor. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's ever mentioned again, but he holds on to Goliath's armor. That'd be quite a trophy to uh, hang on to, especially once he becomes king. Um, verse 55. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, The commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Well, and there's another thing. Saul wants to know who David's father is. Some have thought that was a little controversial too because if you go back <laughs> previous chapter 16, he, he, he knew then. Um, of course, he doesn't ask who David is. He's not saying he doesn't know who David is, but he may not have remembered who his father was. You know, they weren't a big prominent family or anything. He is the king. Um, so... It's also possible that the events of chapter uh, 17 happened before the last part of 16. I know that's not how we would write things, but it could very well be that chronologically that, that that's the case. But either way, it, it's not that, that weird that he wants to know who his father is. But what reasons would he want to know for, that for? Well, he has promised whoever did this was going to marry into his family. <laughs> so... You know, was this family loyal to Saul? Or was it one of those who were a little disgruntled? Uh, was he a threat to the throne in any way? Uh, and it could be possibly just wanting to know what family to reward. It did say something about the father's house being free. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons why he might want to know. 
but that's that's pretty much chapter 17. I've got these came out of a book. I did not come up with these myself. It's a book called David, A Man of Passion and Destiny. Whole book's about David. And this is uh, four lessons that this author thinks emerge from this battle between David and Goliath. And they're meant to be more application to us. They're they're not, you know, as direct. But Stacy and I talked through them, and we found them interesting. And um, if, there, if there's something that... Uh, comes to your mind and you'd like to share it with it or have thoughts on it, I'd appreciate that at this point. Uh, first thing, he says, facing giants is an intimidating experience. We can look back at David's bravery and victory with the perfect hindsight and the safe distance of 2,000 years. But humanly speaking, imagine what it must have felt like to face the intimidating presence of that brute. Even with the eyes of faith, yet David said, my God is greater than he so facing giants is an intimidating experience. I don't know that we look at this and think David was intimidated, but he probably he probably was, but his faith was stronger than his fear. Um, he was confident that God would, would be with him. Uh, but still, it would be intimidating, I would think, in a human's perspective. Any thoughts on that? Okay. Is that what it was? Okay. Well, that would be interesting. I, yeah. 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 So. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody. Is that did did somebody find that in scripture somewhere, or is that just like a? Okay. Oh, okay. They are mentioned. Okay. And they might have been there. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they're like you got it. I don't know, but but that is an interesting thought, though. I hadn't hadn't really heard that. Uh, anybody else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if your aim was true, <laughs> I did some damage. So any other thoughts about that particular one? If not, I'll go to the second one. Doing battle is a lonely experience. No one else can fight for you. Your Goliath is your Goliath. Of course, he was lonely because nobody else wanted to. Um, someone else might say, ah, don't worry about that. But to you, it's a Goliath. And nobody else can battle him for you. Not even a counselor or a preacher, not even a parent or a friend. It's lonely, but it enables you to grow. It's on the lonely battlefield that you learn to trust God. That's an interesting thought to take away. Anybody had a personal experience with that? Because that is true. There's some things you've got to fight, and you have to do it by yourself. You may have some people rooting for you and praying for you, but the physical act of what you got to do is is yours. Um, I know when we talked about it, Stacy had brought up you know health things, cancer, different things. You you can have a lot of support, but you got to physically go through it yourself. <laughs> um, but that's when you learn to trust God. Is what this this author is saying. That while it might be a lonely fight, that's when you grow and learn to trust God. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. And maybe in this battle, that's where you grow to that point, where you have that faith to where you look at it that way. David's already there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he already knew. Yeah. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so basically, God's looking. I mean, David's looking at it from from protecting the name of God and being insulted and offended, and you know, God needs to be uh, upheld here. And the others, like he's saying, might have been more of a political and a strategical, and how do we live through this kind of thing? And David's like, God's got this. So, but when you have your own personal glass and things you've got to go through, um, that is a good time where your faith can grow and you can learn to trust God through anything. The third thing this author points out is trusting God is a stabilizing experience. David brought down Goliath with the first stone. His aim was true. He didn't miss the mark. We can't know for sure, but from every indication, he didn't have the jitters when he went into battle. He was stabilized by his trust in God. If you try to tackle the giant in the flesh, you can't get it done. You'll lose. But when you have spent sufficient time on your knees, it's remarkable how stable you can be. That's an interesting point, too. Uh, David was fully trusting in his God, and that gave him the ability to not worry and not uh, be kind of shaky about it. He just went and did because he trusted his God. So, Anybody had an experience with that personally? Something like that? A battle? We probably all have at some point, maybe on a smaller scale. But um, And then the last thing this author's got before we move on to uh, chapter 18, winning victories is a memorable experience. We're to remember the victories of our past. We're to pass on our line and bear stories, our own Goliath victories. So what does David do when he's trying to convince the king that God's with him? He shares his past victories that he's had with God because of God. But he remembers them, shares them, and uh, he's able to convince the king that, yes, God can do this, and he's going to do it through you. So when we have these these personal victories and things that uh, could mean something to someone else, share them. Share them. It's okay to share your vulnerabilities and show people that you've come through something because of God and... Um, you may strengthen them in the process. Any other thoughts before we move on to chapter 18? A little more straightforward with chapter 18. But <laughs> Got a little bit. Yes, Daryl? Wow. <laughs> so if we have something like that, to develop it and let God use it. <laughs> That's exactly what he did. But uh, that whole story, I guess, comes down to just uh, faith and trust and belief in God and that he can be with you even when it seems impossible. And I guess that's what we've always gotten from that story. But uh, I think if we dig a little more, you can probably get more personal things. But uh, okay, chapter 8. Oh, somebody else? I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. I didn't see you. So David knows where everything came from. It wasn't him. Whereas, yeah, mm-hmm. I, th- I think David always seems to give God the glory for whatever he's accomplished. Um, he makes his mistakes, as we find through the Bible. He's had some pretty big sins, which should give us all hope if God still thinks that someone after his own heart that, uh, you know, you can mess up and God's still with you. Um, but it's definitely a different contrast between Saul 
and David once David becomes king. You know, David does seek after what God wants. And Saul seems to be more concerned with the people and their favor and pleasing them. And uh, something I was going to say last week, but I just didn't really want to, because it's not, it's just my own personal thought. But Saul, you know, it's kind of a sad story, his, but uh, the people wanted the king. God gives in and it says, that's what you want? Okay. And he finds Saul. He looks like a king. He looks like what the people were thinking. You know, he's, he's kind of a giant to them in a way, not like Goliath, but uh, he looks the part. So he's their first king. But as you can see, <laughs> he only looks the part. And it's almost like God was like, I'm going to give you the whole king experience. Here you go. This is what you thought you wanted. But then when we get David... You're going to see what a real king can be and one that follows me. I'm not saying he set Saul up to fail. Don't think he did because at the very beginning you can see he, he gave him everything he needed to be successful. He gave him the ability to choose. You know, the Holy Spirit was on him. He starts off really good, you know. And uh, But Saul made his own choices out of his own what he wanted and not necessarily what God wanted. And uh, since David was always the plan all along, you know, when Jesus comes out of that bloodline, then uh, I guess God would have had to know how it was going to go. But I don't know. I just feel like Saul was the king they thought they wanted. And then they were like, maybe not. <laughs> um, so just because he looked the part didn't mean he, he had it inside him to, uh, to live the way he needed to. But all right, let's go on to chapter 18. And... Let's see if I can get, I think I can get through 18 before the bell rings. All right, 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So Jonathan loved David as his own soul. I don't know why it's so immediate. Maybe he already knew about him, but maybe this is their first close encounter. But it's pretty much a hard and fast you know, relationship right off the bat, it seems. Uh, and this is the beginning of a very deep and loyal friendship between them. They're both young, capable military heroes, and they both, as I said earlier, have a very strong faith in God. So they, they would be drawn to each other, I think. They'd have so much in common, and having that, that faith in God would be such a, a good foundation for the friendship they have. <clears throat> and we know Jonathan and Saul were at odds a lot of times on what they thought. And uh, David seems to be more in line with how Jonathan is, I think. Um, Saul wouldn't let David return home. This might have actually been kind of self-serving. He may already be seeing David as a possible threat, wanting to keep a watchful eye on him. I don't know. But uh, he he wants him with him. Uh, Of course, we know he's playing the liar for him and that kind of thing. But I think before he was coming and going, now he's staying. He's not going back home. Uh, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. This is like a a solemn pact of friendship. Uh, 
He gives him all those things, his robe, his armor, sword, his bow, his belt. Um, Jonathan would have been the, the heir apparent to the throne, I believe, uh, with Saul. Uh, so him, him giving these items to David, you know, these items probably signified to the people in some way that he was the, the next in line. Uh, I don't, he doesn't say that, but odds are there was something about what he wore and had and that would have let people know I, I'm the, the next after Saul. Uh, so this was not a gift made lightly. Um, I even saw some commentaries suggest that Jonathan knows at this point that David was going to be the next king of Israel. It doesn't say that. I don't know. But he could have. Uh, but at the very least, it's a foreshadowing of, of the transfer of kingship to David. Uh, you, you can see Jonathan feels much more for David than he does his own father in, in as far as you know, leading uh, let's pick up in verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Um, and Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So the women come out singing and dancing. It's a celebration of the victory. I mean, this, this giant had been tormenting Israel for 40 plus days and nights, and he's dead. So it's a celebration is what this is. Um, the anger, they anger Saul by appearing to exalt David over him. Of course it would. He's the king. Um, but not to the point that he takes it. Uh, he becomes very jealous of David. Saul has shown he cares you know, very much about the praise of the people. Uh, he sees David as having everything but his kingdom. He may be remembering Samuel's words at this point about being replaced. Uh, so he doesn't, he doesn't like everybody thinking so highly of David, especially in the same breath as him uh, and not being... As valiant. So that's the beginning of uh, Saul just really not being able to handle David. <laughs> All right, let's move on here. Verse 10. Uh, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and, he, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So ESV says a harmful spirit from God. That's what I read from. New King James says a distressing spirit from God, which this also happens in chapter 16, verse 14. Uh, ESV, like I just read, says that Saul raved within his house, but New King James says prophesied inside his house. Um these were most likely ravings of a that would appear to be a madman. You know, he wasn't looking like he's in his right head there. Uh, God had removed his own spirit from Saul. So even if this is a prophecy of some kind, it would have been false and not of God. So either way, he comes off kind of like a madman kind of in, in this way. And as far as a harmful spirit from God, it's another one of those instances maybe we don't completely understand. Uh, Saul's pretty much already in his heart given himself over to what he cares about to the point, you know, God's removed his his spirit from him. So 
I don't think God has made him become this way, but I do think he's kind of given him over to it, which we've seen in other times. And it's always confusing to us, I know, but um, that's what it says. Um, Saul attempts to pin David to the wall with a spear, uh, but he wouldn't have continued in favor with God if he'd actually killed David. The people love David. Uh, so clearly he's not in his right mind because, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. David has a, a lyre or a harp and he's playing and Saul's ready for him to do bad. <laughs> he's got a weapon. <laughs> yep. So jealousy is consuming Saul already at this point, it appears, um, which is never good. All right, verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from, from Saul. So he's actually afraid of David at this point. He knows what people can do if God's with them and God behind them. He did. Um, but he also knows God's left him of his own doing. It wasn't, yeah. So he's afraid of David because he knows he is a threat. So Saul removed him from his presence, made him a commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Um, so Saul, in verse 12, he only views David as a threat to himself. That's what he's thinking. He's not thinking of what a blessing to Israel David is. And God's with him. He knows God's with him, but he wants him dead. It is, you know, <laughs> A man of God wouldn't think this way, I guess, is, is the point. Did Saul really think he could fight against you know, God's will by taking out all the threats to his kingdom? You know, That doesn't sound like someone in the right mind either because you can't fight against God. He knows that. He knows that. So it's, this is just where he's, he's falling down to. So Saul decides to remove David from his presence, making him a commander over a bunch of men. Uh, maybe Saul thought David would be killed in battle, which I think we're going to find later in the chapter that is the case. Uh, maybe being separated from David would remove the temptation of him trying to kill him himself. You know, because like I said, he's going to fall out of favor with the people if he kills their beloved hero. Um, and maybe Saul thought David being away from the people would remove him from their minds, but that didn't work. <laughs> David was successful in everything he did and was even more beloved by the people. So that plan doesn't work. Let's move on to 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son, the son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. Um, so Saul offers his first daughter, and Merib, if you translate it literally, it means compensation or substitute. So I don't know why you'd name your daughter that. But anyway, uh, he offers him as a wife, but um, he's hoping the Philistines would put into David for him. So say so that is kind of what he was thinking. So David's humble response is like, who am I? Who am I to be the king's son-in-law? 
And of course, you know, he had already offered whoever killed Goliath to, to marry his daughter, so he's kind of not making good on that very quickly, and he's going to add some stipulations to it. Uh, but this Adriel, the Maholothite, <clears throat> I saw one commentary that said we didn't ever hear anything about him again, or know anything about him, but actually, if you read Second Samuel 21, 8, uh, Adriel, the Maholothite, and Merib have a bunch of children. They have five sons that were later executed by David as punishment for Saul's disregard of Joshua's covenant with the Gibeonites. And you can look at 2 Samuel 21.8 and Joshua 9.20 to flesh out that. But So we do know one other thing about this person. All right, verse 20. We're going to make it. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and his servants love you. Now when be- then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man? And have no reputation. And the servants of Saul told him, Thus so, and so did David speak. And then Saul said, There's a lot of back and forth here. <laughs> then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he might be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son in law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So he does wind up with his other daughter, Michael, whose name means who is like God. She loved David. Saul sought to use her as a snare for David because he's going to set up these stipulations before they could get married. Uh, David's a poor man couldn't afford what they call the bride price. We'd probably think more like a dowry or something like that. Um, Saul knew this, so he's setting him up, and he said that he would accept 100 foreskins of the Philistines, uh, which the Philistines wouldn't have been circumcised. So he would know that that's what he had, he had killed by what he was bringing back, not to be too <laughs> graphic. But Saul was hoping David would die. He's basically... But you know, what does this remind you of later with David? He does the same thing with Uriah. Tries to get him killed in battle. So this happens to David in this situation, but then he turns around and kind of does the same thing, except he's successful. Um, so David brought, he didn't bring 100. He's like, 100? Sure. He brings 200. So <laughs> he's thinking he's going to get killed. Instead, he brings double. Uh, so now... Saul knows for sure how much God is with him. His daughter, his son Jonathan, they love David. People close to him in his kingdom love David. So he's afraid of David even more. 
So even though Saul knows God's with David, he's David's enemy continually. So he knows God's with him, but that's his enemy. So David continues to be successful, and his name is highly esteemed. So none none of this works out for Saul, but uh, as we'll see, David will ascend and, and be God's next king. So thank you very much. I appreciate your attention and your comments. We are dismissed.